As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome. The Athletic Football Show. Today's Thursday, April 21st. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today is my good friend Bill Barnwell, VSPN. How you doing, buddy? Mays, you know, I thought there was going to be nothing to discuss on today's show. And then the NFL opened up a world for us where Debo Samuel suddenly does not want to be a San Francisco 49er for some reason. Common theme this spring. A lot of that happening where we'll have a show planned and then we'll have to do a little bit of a pivot. We are going to talk about something else today. I, In the lead up to the draft, you know, last year you and I looked back and we looked at the best and worst drafting teams of the last decade and I really enjoyed that and I was trying to figure out a look back show to do with you and the genesis of this is that I was listening to Jalen Ramsey on the Pivot podcast, Ryan Clark's new podcast that he's doing, and just talking about the Cowboys potentially drafting him. And I was looking back at that 2016 draft and just all the sliding doors moments, not just that, but all the ripple effects from that draft. Mm -hmm. You can look at the league through the top half of the first round of the 2016 draft in a lot of ways. I mean, you think about the Laramie Tunsil trade. And all of the butterfly effects that that's had. You recently wrote about that. So that's what I wanted to do today. I wanted to look back at the 2016 draft as a way to better understand the last six years of NFL football. But before we do that, like you alluded to, we got to talk about Debo Samuel because this is wild. Okay. <laughs> Jeff Darlington. So the obviously the timeline of this. We have the normal social media scrub, which it, it's a standard part of the process these days. Honestly, if you haven't scrubbed your employer from your social media <laughs> during the offseason, it, it, it's like when Aaron Rodgers did that cleanse. That's just part of the offseason process. <laughs> oh, I need to take better care of myself, I guess. So that happens. <laughs> Yesterday on NFL Live, Adam Schefter throws out a little bait that it seems like <laughs> this is Debo not wanting to engage with the Niners on this, which seems surprising. And then Jeff Darlington tweets today. That it is, in fact, Debo wanting out of San Francisco and not that the Niners are hesitant about paying him. No specific reason given. It has been implied multiple places. I think Ian Rappaport said this earlier today on NFL Network that Debo has concerns about his role. The Niners have reached out to him about a possible extension that would pay him near the top of the market. 
And he's like, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> I don't really want to play for you guys anymore. I mean, just a pretty crazy series of events. Yeah. And I mean, any other offseason, you'd be like, wow, this is nuts. And then it would this be the wildest thing that's happened this over the last season. like three months. <laughs> this offseason, just like, wow, I'm kind of surprised that DK Metcalf wants to stay with the Seahawks. <laughs> like, why would anybody want to stay with their team? That's weird. I do want to talk about that a little bit, but let's talk about just some of the specifics as it relates to the Debo Samuel thing. Okay. You know, it he has concerns about his role. And I guess, and if that's in fact true, I get that, right? I mean, this is a guy that if you look at the market for receivers, you look at the market for running backs, and the chasm between those two things. You think about what his usage over time in San Francisco would do to his longevity as a player. Mm -hmm. If I were Debo Samuel, I would absolutely have concerns about that. So that's part of this this conversation. The other part is what he might look like somewhere else. Because we think, you know, as we talked about the draft and different roles and archetypal players in the league, I think a lot of people have mentioned the Debo Samuel mm-hmm. role as this idea of a player who runs the ball a lot and plays receiver. Debo was second in the NFL in yards per route run last year. Mm-hmm. He only carried the ball six times the first nine games of the season. He was an all-pro wide receiver. He doesn't need to play this way to be effective and to be one of the more impactful offensive players in the entire league, and I'm sure he knows that. So there's just a lot of push and pull here on both sides that I actually do understand. Like that part of it is not that crazy to me. Yes, but I think there's, I I I think there's a few questions, and you alluded to one of them at, off the top, which was you're you're trading for someone who was just in an offense built to his strengths, one hundred percent, with a play caller who say whatever you want about Kyle Shanahan, like the dude manufactures the right touches at the right time for the right people in that offense. So when you're trading for Debo Samuel, you're basically saying, hey, we can do that too. You know, whatever schlup we have at offensive coordinator, like, yeah, we can get that guy to do (laughs) the exact same stuff. And I, I feel like I'm an outlier in terms of my opinion here on Debo Samuel, like, yes, you mentioned first half of the year, not running the ball was second in the NFL in yards per route run. I, I think I feel pretty confident. Actually, 2021 was the best season we will ever see Debo Samuel have. Like, I think given his skill set, given his ability, I think this was the best possible outcome in terms of what he can do uh, on the football field. And I think there's a few reasons why. Um, Number one, he was healthy um, for most of the year. He missed a game. But this is a guy who's really struggled to stay healthy his first two seasons in the NFL. And that is a legitimate concern for him moving forward. And I'm Number sure it's part of the reason he doesn't want to take all those hits. Oh, fair. I, I absolutely understand fair. that. And I don't, I don't fault him for that in the slightest. But if he's not doing that, that takes away a huge chunk of his value. Like, yes, he still can be a valuable receiver. But last year, um, he had more DYIR, the football outsider's efficiency is that he had more DYR as a runner than he did as a receiver, which is crazy. Um, and as a runner, even if he were was going to be a runner in the future, there was no way he could be this effective again. He had 57 carries outside the five-yard line, scored seven times. He led the NFL in rushing touchdowns outside the five-yard line, not among receivers, Maze, among any position. Jonathan Taylor had 302 carries outside the five-yard line <laughs> and did not score as many touchdowns as Debo Samuel did. But let's say he's not doing that anymore. That's fine. But as a receiver, 
yes, he is super talented. He's big. Uh, he drops the ball more than you might like. He fumbled four times last year, but he's also put in situations where maybe the quarterback he was playing with might have put him into uh, a bit of a hospital yeah, that, ball situation. That doesn't concern me at all. I, I, for, I think it's more about him playing in an offense designed to create yak opportunities. He's a monster. He makes more of those opportunities than pretty much anyone else would. But if you look at the numbers over the years, Kyle Shanahan has done consistently the best job of creating yards after catch chances for the players in his offense. He has really good yak players, but it's a little column A, a little column B. And you saying this about, I don't know if we'll ever see a better version of him in, in San Francisco or elsewhere. And I think if he were to change teams, it would dampen this even more. I think that's true about most receivers. The Stephon Diggs thing, I think, has given us kind of a false understanding Mm -hmm. of how effective receivers often are when they change teams. And I think if you look at Devontae Adams, you look at Tyreek Hill, and if Debo Samuel were to change situations, I think this is true for all of them. They were in a perfect football spot. The marriage between scheme, the way they were used, everything was at this sweet spot where we got to see the best versions of them. And even if we like them as players... I think that replicating all of those circumstances mm-hmm. is so, so difficult that all of these guys that these teams are trading king's ransoms to go get probably aren't going to be the same players we saw in their previous situation for a whole multitude of reasons. Well, I, I mean, I, I would say the only argument you might make in Debo's favor is he's young. I mean, he's younger. That's than the difference, right? Tyreek and it's, he's coming off a cheaper deal. He's younger than Devontae Adams, so he still has... Uh, you know, he still has another whole contract before he gets to where those guys are in their respective careers. But the other side is Tyreek Hill has been Tyreek Hill for several years now. Devontae Adams has been Devontae Adams for several years now. This is the first year Debo was this dude. And to get to my other stat when it comes to his yards after catch, they're like, yes, he is going to be a monster after the catch. That is not going to change. But Debo Samuel had three receptions last year of 75 yards or more. The last time anybody in the NFL did that was Lee Evans 15 years ago. Like, 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 <laughs> even if he's going to be a monster after the catch, which I think he will be, even if he is a guy who can be a physical force, which he is, like, this was the best possible version of that physical force, the best possible version of that super yak receiver for Kyle Shanahan. Like, I, I think he had just the, 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 way 99th percentile outcome season for his skill set and that is he can still be a valuable player and i think he can still be a valuable player outside of this offense but when you start thinking about not just paying him but also trading significant draft capital to get him like he has to be a monster it's the same conversation we had about cleo mack where it wasn't just paying him market value but also trading multiple first round picks to get him he has to be a defensive player of the year candidate year after year and he kind of was that guy in year one, but not really after that for the Bears. And for Debo, I think this is sort of the same situation where if you're trading a first-round pick, which I think is the bare minimum the Niners would even consider to make this trade, and then you're giving him a contract worth $25 million a year, well, he has to be that guy from 2021 year after year to make that work. And that is, I think that's tough to imagine. It's tough to imagine for any player. And with all of these trades, with Devontae Adams, with Tyree Kill, even they, those guys have longer track records, records of success. I still think it's going to be hard to live up to the capital required to go get them. Well, and I think that would be true for Debo Samuel, too. Yeah, we're going to talk about 
someone who was traded in one of those deals where it kind of worked out. Uh, and that's actually. the only one. It's the only one that where it ever has. And I think that's important to remember. And I want to separate out and kind of parse this part of the conversation a little bit because I think that it can be smart on the team's trading to go get those assets mm-hmm. and to say, all right, I would rather have the cap room and the draft capital, whether it's a first-round pick, first-round pick and change, and the $23 million a year. I think I don't think it's that as easy as saying, I want that, and I'm just replacing it with a first-round receiver. Mm-hmm. I do think we're overstating how easy it is to find all pro receivers in sure. the draft, For and sure. I think that we're getting a little, again, carried away with what Minnesota did with Justin Jefferson. <laughs> like There are a lot of Jalen Ragers and Nicole Hardmans and all of those sorts of players in the first two rounds, even if there have been, mm-hmm. there has been a glut of really good receivers. I don't think it's as simple as, well, we'll just take Chris Olave at 25 and he'll be Debo Samuel. No, like, of course th- that's just not how this works. And I, I think we're overstating how much the availability of receiving talent in the draft is going to impact or should impact these decisions. Of course. But what I would say is this. What happens when it works out? Like like when you get uh, Devontae Adams and he's a superstar. Well, great. He's as good as you're paying him. Like you're getting exactly what you yes. paid for. It's hard, it's hard for him is, to overpay or outplay what you're paying right. him. That is the best case scenario. Justin Jefferson is making five four million dollars a year and is a 25 million dollar a year player like i think that is the that's why teams are willing to make this trade because yes you're not going to get what you're hoping for every single time but number one that isn't always the case with the veterans either and number two when it does work out even if it only works out half the time you're still making money on that uh in terms of surplus value on that offer so i do think that you know it's different for each team right like, you know, I think if you're the Bills and you were in the situation you were in, making the Stefan Diggs trade make total sense. Even if you... Well, that extension was already locked in, too. It's right. a huge part of it. Of course, for sure. I think I'd say a huge part that people don't consider is that you don't. they already had him for two years on a very reasonable deal before they even had to consider negotiating an extension. And they gave him an extension, and I have no issue with that whatsoever. But um, what I would say is that, you know, I, I think... We have to consider all those factors, and we have to consider the context of the team. And I think there are teams out there where I would be hesitant to make this move, but I could also very easily understand some teams in this draft saying, "Yeah, I'd rather go get Debo Samuel." I've I and I'm going to see what I can get and hope that it works out. Just because we're in a situation where having a player with more certainty, even if it's not total certainty, is still better for us given where we are in our, our sort of competitive cycle. Which team do you think it would make sense for? Oh boy. What team do you think it would make sense for? It's hard for me to find one because let's say you throw the Jets out as an option. it take the 10th pick, yep. maybe. Mm-hmm. And the receivers that the Jets were going after that they were potentially interested in, Debo Samuel isn't like those guys. I mean, Tyreek Hill and Debo Samuel do have more overlap than it might seem at first glance just based mm-hmm. on how Tyreek Hill's been used over the last couple of years. But Tyreek Hill still has a top-off-the-defense element that it seems like the Jets were chasing. And I think DK Metcalf would be more set up to give them than a guy like Debo Samuel would, even if there's familiarity with the coaching staff there. I mean, does it feel like a a team like Green Bay would want him? I don't know if that necessarily makes sense when you consider what they've asked of their receivers and what they need within that offense. There isn't a logical fit to me. Honestly, the one that would make the most sense is Miami, but they no longer have a need for him. Would you do it if you're the Patriots? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I think I mean, that's I think that's a good one. I honestly think that's a good one because they desperately need help there. I mean, the Devontae Parker deal maybe 
prevents them from wanting to do that. They just gave okay. up draft capital for okay. someone. Okay, here's here here's a good rule to have in life: don't let Devonte Parker stand in the way of your dreams. If you want to get Tebow that's, that's Samuel, totally fine. you you know what? You'll you'll find some place for Devonte Parker. You can always trade him somewhere else for a fifth round pick. So here's why I think that would make sense. Because th- I think they need someone who can create instant offense just mm-hmm. by getting the ball in his hands. Yep. Because Mac is never going to be that guy that's going to push the ball down the field. He doesn't have that out- otherworldly arm. Can you have someone that can earn offense solely by getting the ball in his hands? And I think mm-hmm. Debo is the answer for that. So that that would be one that does make sense to me. I like that a lot, actually. But if you're the Niners, are you sort of acquiescing here? Are you going to dare Debo Samuel to hold in or not show up to camp or, or whatever. Cause like he doesn't yes. have a lot of leverage in this. Situation. I, I'm, I'm going to try to win that staring contest. If I'm San Francisco. Cause like, I, I think he is more valuable to the Niners given what they do with him and given, given Kyle Shanahan's ability than he is for most NFL teams. I totally agree with that. Uh, and it's kind of, that's the frustrating part about this is that I get why he's upset about the way he's being used, but it is sad as someone who loves watching these guys in these perfect situations for them to see those perfect situations erode. And we've seen it happen three different times. Like not getting to watch Aaron Rodgers throw the ball to Devontae Adams anymore is a bummer for people who love watching football. And Tyreek Hill and Patrick Mahomes over the last few years have been a perfect match for one another. And now we're seeing consistently those matches start to disintegrate. Mm Mm-hmm. Why am I like worried he's going to end up with like the Falcons or somewhere just totally hopeless? Oh God, that would be a terrible or, decision. Or, or the Commanders. <laughs> well, I mean, McLaurin's another one of those. I would you rather if you could trade for one right right now? You have to trade for one. You have to give up one first round pick, mm-hmm. and you have to give them twenty three million dollars a year. Would mm-hmm. you rather have Debo Samuel or Terry McLaurin? Terry McLaurin. I think so too. I and that's not not to say that Debo's a bad player by any means. I just think, like I said, I think this was the. Debo was in the best possible situation to succeed and had the best possible outcome of that situation. And I don't think you can say the same about Terry McLaurin over the past couple of years. I think that's totally fair. I'm trying to think if I were if I were Chicago and I have the 39th pick, <laughs> would I give up the 39th pick for Debo Samuel and giving give him that extension? The Bears have $125 million in cap space next year. <laughs> well. I was looking at I was looking at cash over cap spending today for something else. By the way, mm-hmm. the Bears are set to spend 140 million dollars in cash right now. The the Browns have spent two, are set to spend 260 million. Wow. It's a 120 million dollar wow. gap in cash spending. It's a fun time to be a fan of the Chicago Bears. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, let's get to the 2016 draft and let's get to how the 2016 draft helps us understand where the league is right now. And 
we can start at the top. And I think we can start at the career paths of Jared Goff and Carson Wentz. From the moment their drafting teams try to acquire them. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that both of these guys, and this is stuff you just forget over time, what it took to go get them. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were splashy trades. The Rams and the Eagles both had to move up from the middle of the first round to the top two to make these picks happen, and they gave up a ton to do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, this was, you know, Les Snead had already been there with the Rams, but this was still the Jeff Fisher era in yeah. Los Angeles. I mean, it was yeah, the end of it. <laughs> right. I mean, it was, it was a, right at the end of, they had just got rid of Sam Bradford. Who was their quarterback? Was it Nick Foles in 2015? Was their quarterback? Yeah, because they traded him for Sam Bradford. Right. So they had Nick Foles for a year. That didn't work out. Um, I think Keith Null started. No, no, that was, that was not Keith Null. Um, Case Keenum and Nick Foles started 16 games for them. And they were competitive. They went seven and nine, which is, that's the Jeff Fisher joke. Ha ha ha. Um, but I mean, they were not in position where it was okay. They're going to make a big move, obviously. And for the Eagles, I mean, that was a team that was very much in transition. Chip Kelly had just been fired. That roster was a mess. They had like $30 million invested in running backs or something crazy. They had to get rid of DeMarco Murray. They had to get rid of, they kept Ryan Matthews, I think, but um, they had to make multiple trades to even get the capital to move up to the second overall pick for Wentz. And that even came after they had signed Chase Daniel to a reasonable deal for a backup and signed Sam Bradford. And they had Bradford. And they, that, the fact that they had those guys in the building is amazing. I also love that, and I've totally forgot about this. But to move from 13 to 8 at their first little jump, they traded Byron Maxwell, Kiko Alonso. The fact, how he's destination, like his determination to purge the entire roster of everything that Chip (laughs) Kelly did, it was was remarkable, even in the moment. And with this, listen, he probably didn't want any of those guys anyway. And they moved up five picks and then made the jump from 8 to Mm 2 ultimately possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I I think in the big picture with both these guys, we'll talk about what happens towards the end of their runs with their respective teams. But I think they are sort of the quintessential example of how much your value and how much your production changes based on what's around you. I, I think if you want to make the case that the NFL is mostly driven by where you end up, I think Patrick Mahomes might be example one, and then Jared Goff and Carson Wentz are examples two and three. I mean, Jared Goff had that first year with I, who was his offensive coordinator? Was it Rob Boris? I think it was Rob Boris. Rob yes. Boris was the offensive coordinator. Yep. I mean, he looked totally lost. Deer in headlights. Second half of that season, Carson Wentz good, but numbers fell off so dramatically once his offensive line was struck. I think Lane Johnson missed a good chunk of that year, and his numbers on-off numbers were just dramatic. And then. Year two, but you know, you had talent at receiver, offensive lines healthy for once, and Goff gets Sean McVay and Robert Woods and Andrew Whitworth, and they blossom. I mean, they they took massive, massive leaps in year two. Maybe not a Josh Allen size leap, but pretty shocking given how bad they how, how bad Goff was in his first season and how kind of mediocre was once for most of his second first season. Um, they were really impressive in year two. Even if their play wasn't outlandishly good or man that's like a top five quarterback their play within the context of the offense Wentz was second in EPA per play among quarterbacks his second year golf was fourth mm-hmm. I mean they were top five passing offenses and they did that while giving up all of that draft capital to go get those guys mm-hmm. in the moment when you were watching the Rams and the Eagles 
in 2017 and then into 2018 for the Rams, there was never once a thought of, man, I can't believe they gave up so much to go get Jared Goff or Carson Wentz. Because like you said, with the capital and free agency and spending and against the cap Mm -hmm. that they had with those guys on rookie contracts, they were able to surround them with the right supporting cast and the right coaches for at least a couple different years. The Rams went out in free agency in 2017 and got Andrew Whitworth and Robert Woods. Roger Saffold was on a second deal. By the way, I totally forgot about this. Remember when Roger Saffold failed his physical and couldn't sign with the Raiders? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that remember. I remember talking about this with you. And when we were at Grantland, like I remember being in that studio at LA Live when this happened and we were breaking it down. It was in like 2013 or 2014. I totally forgot about that until I was doing the research for this. I don't remember that at all. But so this that year, 2017, Mm -hmm. they were middle of the road in offensive spending, which makes sense when you have a rookie quarterback. They were fourth in cap spending on defense that year, and they finished seventh in EPA per play on defense. The Eagles in 2017, when they went to the Super Bowl, they were seventh in the percentage of cap spending on their offensive line, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. They were able to build up the other parts of that roster with those guys on those rookie deals to the point where, again, no one ever said, I can't believe they traded the equivalent of another number one overall pick to Mm -hmm. go up in the draft and get this guy because of how well it worked out with the resources that they had left over. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's the difference between trading for a 28-year-old wide receiver who's going to get $25 million a year and trading for a 22-year-old quarterback who's going to get $6 million a year. Even if he's just okay. (laughs) Even if he's just, even if he's Mac Jones. Like, like you're still getting a guy at a position where the market is, back then it was like $20 million a year, now it's $35 million a year or $38 million a year for a good veteran quarterback. If you can approximate that for $6 million a year, you're coming out so far ahead, even if you do trade up to get that guy. So I think that's why, like, that that's the difference between these sorts of trades and why I'm always a little hesitant when we talk about comparing, you know, trading for Devontae Adams and trading for Tyreek Hill to trading for Jared Goff or trading for, um, you know, guys on rookie deals. There's just such a big difference financially. And, you know, I, I think we sort of saw this a little bit with the Robert Griffin trade in year one. Like, remember, there was that big flip of like year one. I was like, oh my God, how how could the Rams trade away that pick for Robert Griffin? They got a bunch of draft picks. Who cares? And then by year two or year three, it was like, oh, that was actually a really good trade for the Rams, as it turned out. And that, that flip kind of happened with these guys, but it didn't happen until much further down the line. Well, by the end of the 2018 season, okay, both of those teams had been to the Super Bowl. Yep. <laughs> both of them. And those offenses had been really good in route. Obviously, Wentz didn't play in the Super Bowl, but he was an MVP candidate. He was on his way to winning it in 2017 for a really good offense. The Rams offense in the first two years under McVay was fantastic. I mean, they were one of the best offenses in football. And it, you were ahead of this, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But when that happens, if you have a Super Bowl caliber offense and you're winning all these games and you have a quarterback at the center of that, I think the default setting is just, okay, well, it's time to pay that guy. Right. Like we can win with him. We're going to give him a top of the market extension because that's how this has always gone. And the fear of the unknown and any sort of alternative to what we've been looking at over the last two years, why would we explore that avenue? Uh, Less need in training camp in 2019, after only three years of Jared Goff, said it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when he gets extended. Mm-hmm. And then he got extended. And that was a couple months after Wentz did. So Wentz got $107 million in guarantees that mm-hmm. June, which just beat out 
the deal that Russell Wilson had gotten in April. Yeah. Golf got $110 million in guarantees. Both of their average annual values landed in the top five among quarterbacks. And that, in a way, I think to most people in that moment, makes sense. Because you can win with him was often enough for most teams at quarterback. But you, even in that moment, balked at that idea for Jared Goff. I, and I, I think that you deserve credit for that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I will say, you remember the game where Jared Goff threw five touchdowns against the Vikings on a Thursday I was night? there. You were there. Yes. You were there. That was the day I published my article that was like, maybe we shouldn't pay these guys and you should save your money. And the next day, I think the entire Rams organization was like, who is this idiot who said they wrote this article about Jared Goff? Uh, I had people without prompting say that to me. <laughs> In the organization. So, yes, you are correct about that. Yes. So, I mean, that's fair. He was awesome in that game. He was he was so good in that game. But that was... I. It was the best game I've ever seen a quarterback play in person. It's up to that point. He was incredible. He was like... It felt like he was like bending the ball like through space and time. The throw he hit to the back of the end zone, yep. the long one to Cup, it was, I mean, beautiful. He can throw a football. I mean, the well, guy was the sure number can. one overall pick. Like, he's got, when it looks good and he's pointed in the right direction, it can look really damn good. And that night was the pinnacle of it. It was that night and the Chiefs game. That was a few months later, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that was the best Jared Goff we saw. But I, I think, and this is before. That stretch at the end was it? No, was it? Yeah, it was before the stretch. That stretch at the end of twenty eighteen because they made the Super Bowl that year. That was the stretch where the the Rams running game got clogged up by uh, the stuff Vic Fangio was running and the stuff. Started with that Lions running. game. It started to come the off Lions the game. off the rails a little bit. Yeah, right. And then Todd Gurley wasn't one hundred percent, and um, the running game was still fine with CJ Anderson. But we sort of saw okay, we've seen teams attack the Rams' plan A, and and play action wasn't quite as effective as it had been before. The offensive line maybe take a step backwards the following year. And when things were not perfect around Jared Goff, we saw him struggle. Not as bad as it did during his rookie season, of course, but we still saw him not be exactly the same guy he had been in that Vikings game or in that Chiefs game. When he had, he was not able to create out of that scheme, out of that system, he looked kind of like a guy you would just plug in. And, and that argument I had made uh, earlier in the season when I looked like a real idiot was basically what if the best thing to do is to keep all those guys who were the superstars in your offense maybe it's best to keep Todd Gurley and Cooper Cup and Brandon Cooks and Robert Woods and Andrew Whitworth and all those guys and instead of cutting back on those guys maybe you cut back on the quarterback and maybe you trade that quarterback for uh, a new piece maybe you trade him for a top five pick and then you use that top five pick to get the next cheap quarterback and it's one of those things where I think it's easy to say when you're not actually an NFL general manager. Like it's much easier for me to say that than it is for an actual GM to make that trade. But I think we've seen the downside with these Goff and Wentz deals is that if you're not a tippy top Patrick Mahomes level superstar, if you're just pretty good when and really good when everything around you is perfect, we saw the limitations of that and we saw both these teams have to go back on these deals pretty quickly. I don't fault either team for signing not the deals all. that they to did be in clear. the moment. To be clear, I, not in the slightest. I don't at all. Because I do think it's so much easier for us to say this from the outside. Because if you're moving on from that quarterback, it's a weird messaging thing. There's so many different considerations to take into account when you're thinking about harmony in your locker room. And there are just so, a ton of different factors. But I will say, I do think that the results and the lessons from both of those deals 
are starting to affect the way that teams are thinking about how they move forward now. Mm-hmm. Do you think if the Wentz and Golf things don't happen, do you think Baker gets extended last summer? Mm-hmm. I would say no, just because I think the Browns are a more analytically inclined organization than most. I think if it were Baker Mayfield playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers and Goff and Wentz don't happen, I think Baker gets extended. And that's not to say the Steelers are not smart, because they are. They're just smart in a different way. But I think the Browns were thinking about this problem maybe the same way I was thinking about this problem a little bit when it comes to, do the economics of this really make sense? And I think I think Baker's the classic example, right? You know, in terms of just— He's a perfect example. Like, so much has to be around him for it to work. And I think we saw, sort of like Goff and Wentz, but to an even greater extent, we saw the full range of what surrounded Baker Mayfield at his best and at his worst. I mean, we saw him with the offense working, with a great offensive line, with good receivers. We saw him with an excellent running game. And we saw him when nothing was working, the coach was a mess, and the offense was basically relying on him to do stuff, and he couldn't do it. And I think— that makes that easier to see. I think if you see like a guy who is consistently just okay, like I think you're less likely to do it than if you're seeing those sort of big ups and downs before his contract comes up. And maybe that was the case with Goff. Like maybe he was still good enough earlier in that deal that the Rams were not willing to think about that possibility of him to not just not taking that step forward and not being that guy. Whereas I think with Baker having those big ups and downs sort of made the Browns think, okay, well, if he's only good when he's perfect, when things are perfect around him, what does that tell us? And I think, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it would have happened either way. I, I can't say. But I do think that Goff and Wentz were certainly kind of scare cases for, for teams on the league. Even if they aren't brave enough to do it, I think it opened their mind to it in a way that maybe that wasn't the case five or six years ago. I'm totally with you. And, and I think that even talking to some teams, I do think that that was in the back of their minds as they've made some of these decisions and they've gone down some of these roads. And I do think it's compounded by some of the other quarterback contracts we've seen that can be anvils, you know, the Kirk Cousins deals. And you look at that and then you, again, I think it's compounded even further by some of the quarterbacks we've seen come into the league. When you're looking at a Justin Herbert or a Patrick Mahomes or a Josh Allen, and then you're looking at your quarterback, if he is just a guy paying for that certainty and paying $35 million to have it, I just don't think you can do it anymore. Okay. So not only are the Carson Wentz and Jared Goff deals enough to scare people off, but I think it's also coming from another direction where you have this tier of quarterbacks that's pushing it even further down the road. Okay. But then let me ask you, what's the line? Because is it's, We've talked about line? this. It's the car continuum. <laughs> Me and Lindsay discussed this the other day. It's the car continuum. If you are worse than Derek Carr, that's the line. If you're better, then that's fine. You can commit to that quarterback. So if Mac Jones doesn't improve that much? That's sorry, Mac. <laughs> I mean, that's it. I, I do it's so hard. It's so hard to define where that line is. And I think that we're gonna see tons of teams dance around it mm-hmm. and make mistakes. But I think that that line has to start existing. If you don't fall over that line, you're going to lose years, years if you commit to that guy. But that's the tough part, right? And I think the other thing is that from a team perspective, like everything you think over those first three years of that guy's career is trying to find evidence to prove that you're right. Like you want to believe these guys are great. If they're not great yet, you want to believe they're going to be great. And so... I think it's so tough as a GM or as a coach to sort of sit there and say, okay, realistically, this guy isn't it. 
because you want him to be it so badly. And you might get fired if he's not it. You might not get the opportunity to get that next guy. So I, I do think that it's it's such a tough thing to do when you're actually part of an organization. I totally, I, 100%. It absolutely is. But I think that you'd have to look at it a little bit differently than you before. And I also think that patience is maybe more important in the process because they signed that those golf and Wentz deals two years before they had to. I don't think you should be afraid of playing out the string a little bit further to give yourself a little bit more information. And maybe you have to overpay a little bit more in the end as a result. Yeah. If it goes well. Yeah. Because then then it's going well. So who cares? Right. Well, part of it is, is for cap reasons. I think you want to have the longest runway possible so you can spend yes. this big signing bonus after five years. But it, it's easier to make a cap structure work two or three years down the line as opposed to signing a guy two years too early and then being stuck having to trade him. Although, I want to point out, the Eagles traded Carson Wentz, the Rams traded Jared Goff, they both made the playoffs, and the Rams won a Super Bowl. So it's easier to move past these guys than maybe we're giving them credit for. Agreed. And I also think that the dead money that those teams are willing to take on has to be part of this conversation. Sure. If your owner is willing to eat that, and we've seen more owners take on those sorts of huge dead money hits over the last three or four years. That's part of this consideration too. For sure. All right. This one's really quick, but I just thought it was worth mentioning. Joey Bosa went third overall in that draft. Joey do, you Bas- remember, jo- do you remember the Joey Bosa story? Wasn't this, I think this is, might've been someone else. Wasn't it Joey Bosa who offended the Browns by showing up to his meeting in sweatpants? <laughs> I I don't remember that, but that wouldn't surprise me at all, knowing Joey Bosa's personality. Go ahead. I'm going to look it up. So Joey Bosa, for the last year, before last fall, was the highest paid non-quarterback in the NFL. It's easy to forget. I know. I forget it. He was making $27 million per year, had $102 million in practical guarantees, which is still, right now, the 10th highest number in the league for Mm non-quarterbacks. Okay? He comfortably beat the numbers for Miles Garrett that Miles Garrett set earlier that season. Mm-hmm. So it again, it's a small thing, but I do think that where his career has gone and the fact that we don't really think about him making that much and it didn't make a huge splash and we don't talk about it, mm-hmm. I think it speaks to how clearly teams still view edge rushers in the pecking order of positions. That it is 100% number two behind quarterbacks and we are willing to pay up to prove that to you. Oh, for sure. I mean, quarterbacks are number one by a significant margin. And then it's edge rushers number two and a bit of a gap between, I think, wide receivers and I want to say offensive tackles is offensive there, tackles is there, yeah. and, and then corners is stepped down from that corners a little bit down from that as well. Yeah, that is the according to the market. Actually, corners are pretty close to tackles now. Corners, I think the average is about a little for $15 million a year for the top 20 guys. And then tackles are about 16 and a half. So they're close. But edge rushers are way ahead of that. Edge rushers, the top 20 guys are a little under 19 or a little sorry 19 and a half a year so i mean it, it's it's a pretty significant leap and i i think you know as the league becomes more and more of a passing league that's not going to change like having those dudes who are just passing game wreckers like that is the ultimate defense that is the ultimate scheme it's the ultimate you know the ultimate defense to any sort of great quarterback and I I mean, I don't think the Chargers regret signing Joey Bosa to that deal. He's going to be the second highest paid Bosa in, in the family in a year or so. But um, I think absolutely uh, that is that is not going to change. By the way, my my memory was accurate. Joey Bosa wore sweatpants and a backwards hat to meet with the Browns. 
For some reason, I thought it was John Dorsey, which was going to be funny to me that John Dorsey was going to give somebody shit for the way they were dressing as a man who wears the same sweatshirt every single day. Listen, I understand it, but he's not a well-dressed man. Well, this is before a pandemic too, right? I mean, now if you wore joggers in 2022 to somewhere, that's kind of formal, to be honest with you. Expectations have definitely shifted. How do you feel about the idea of paying $27 million a year to an dresser? I'm fine with that. Like you You have to pay somebody, right? Yeah. I, I just thought I'm, I'm more like in a vacuum curious, but I, I, I kind of agree. I think that it's totally fine. All right. We get a little bit further down here. Mm-hmm. The Jalen Ramsey, Ezekiel Elliott sliding doors moment Ooh, for Dallas boy. is just, it's fascinating. And this is where the time travel element of this kind of comes into play because yes. there's so many different little branches that you, that you can create. So Dallas ultimately decides to take Ezekiel Elliott over Jalen Ramsey. Mm-hmm. What a to- thing I totally forgot before looking this back up. Let's say the Cowboys take Jalen Ramsey in the first round. Yep. They wait on running back. Do you know who the next running back taken in the 2016 draft was that would have been available with their second round pick? Oh, I have no idea. It's Derrick Henry. <laughs> yes. It's beautiful. Just, just something to throw out there. So then it, if we keep playing it out further. Yep. So the 2017 season. Yep. They don't take Jalen Ramsey in yep. this draft. They have a need at corner. They pick two corners. They pick one in the second round and the third round, Shadobi Awuzie and Jordan Lewis. Okay. Yep. Eventually, the Cowboys have to trade a first round pick for Amari Cooper in 2018 because they have a need at wide receiver. Do you know who the two receivers to go immediately after Shadobi Awuzie were in the 2017 draft? I don't. Juju Smith Schuster and Cooper Cup. <laughs> this is just, and this is fun, right? I mean, that there's obviously a million different considerations. Who knows? what actually ends up happening. But those potentialities are always interesting to explore. And when I just lay that out and you Mm -hmm. just think about Jalen Ramsey on the Cowboys, what about that situation is the first thing that strikes you? Um, I believe that the Cowboys do not let Jalen Ramsey leave after three years. I think that extension gets done. I don't think Jalen Ramsey uh, develops a mysterious back injury. That prevents him from playing. I did. I did remember that. Um, but you know, I I feel like that was a conversation at the time, right? Like, like it wasn't like maybe it is now because it was six years ago. But there was still a conversation at that time, a pretty comfortable conversation at that time about okay, can Ezekiel Elliott be a good enough running back to justify being taken this high? Yeah, that's not revisionist history at all. No, and and, and like I think. Over the first couple of years, that deal, Zeke was phenomenal. He was an absolute, like he was everything the Cowboys could have asked for. I don't think, I think even if you were skeptical of taking running back that high, I think you had to make the argument then of, okay, well, I mean, Zeke's worked out, but otherwise, and part of this is just extending a running back is different from drafting a running back, but um, it reminds me a lot of the Champ Bailey for Clinton Portis trade, just in, in a different sort of way, where it's you know, choosing between a superstar cornerback and a superstar or a very good, maybe in Clinton Portis's case, running back, like just a, a, a superstar cornerback just does more. It's just harder to find those guys. And the Cowboys, I mean, they ended up finding uh, Teron Diggs, who's been very good for them the last year, at least. But, you know, it, they've had issues at cornerback ever since. So you said that in his first two years, he was about as good as you could be. And he was. He was a very good player for those first couple of years, especially as a rookie. But in 2017, the only running backs in the NFL with a higher DVOA than more than 50 carries than Rod Smith, the Cowboys backup that year, the only three guys were Alvin Kamara, okay. Deion Lewis, who had that crazy year in 2017, mm-hmm. and Aaron Jones. 
Those are the only three. So even if Ezekiel Elliott was really good those first couple of years, Rod Smith plugged into that 2017 Cowboys offense was one of the most efficient runners in the NFL that year. And I mean, it's not like the Cowboys had been struggling to run the football. They were like, doing okay. <laughs> they had in 2014, they had DeMarco Murray have a crazy year. Uh, in 2015, I think it was, was it McFadden? Yes. yes. And McFadden was good that year, not as good as, as DeMarco Murray had been, but that offense was a mess. Tony Romo got hurt. Uh, they had Matt Castle and Kellen Moore and Brandon Whedon start games for them that year. I think that would have been the example of, okay, a running back is not going to drive this offense. It's We need to get the quarterback right. And you know, I, I, I think that there's a little bit of hindsight here. I think there there were questions about Jalen Ramsey coming out of school, like maybe he was not going to be, you know, the sort of all-world cornerback he's become. But like you're drafting at that high, you're drafting for upside. Like you're not drafting for the floor. His upside is crazy. Jalen Ramsey is like a once every five years athlete. At his, his upside was we have a cornerback who can play anywhere in the football field who does everything at a high level except for maybe create takeaways. Like he was not a guy who created a lot of takeaways uh, at the college level, but he's totally fine as a pro and obviously has been phenomenal. <laughs> 6 one 2 10 4, 4 40. He was an ACC champion long and triple jumper. <laughs> um, but let me ask you, did you work out where Ezekiel Elliott would have gone if he had not been drafted? I did not do that. By the Cowboys, because I did. Okay. All right. Lay it on me. Now I'm so, interested. So, uh, let me get the right draft. I must went through the 2022 draft order in doing <laughs> this. That is not the right. He would not be taken by the Jets. So he was fourth. Five were the Jaguars who took Jalen Ramsey. They had just signed Chris Ivory to a big deal. Now, maybe they would have drafted Zeke. They've done stranger things and dumber things. They took Leonard Fournette the following year, which that opens up a whole other can of worms as to what they would have done next year in the draft. But I don't think they would have taken a running back at five. The Ravens drafted six. I don't think they would have taken a running back that high in the draft. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think they would do that. I don't think they would have either. Do you know who was seven, though? The San Francisco 49ers, who were coached at that time by Chip Kelly. They took DeForest Buckner, but Chip Kelly loves running backs. I think he absolutely takes Zeke and Zeke goes from being what he's been in Dallas for better or for worse to being like the Darren McFadden where he gets drafted to the Bay Area and this great running back gets kind of lost in obscurity for a few years. I think you're underselling the Oregon connection with the Forrest Buckner and Chip Kelly. I don't know. And then, you know, who had, you know, had the eighth overall pick that year. Uh, it was the Chicago Bears pick Leonard no, Ford. Oh, no. no. Uh, it was, no, it was uh, Tennessee. Jack Conklin. Tennessee. Yeah, Jack Conklin. That's right. Maybe Tennessee takes Ezekiel Elliott and Derrick Henry goes somewhere else. Oh, man. See, this is why it's fun. All right. So the Zeke contract effects, the yeah. ripple effects of that are absolutely worth exploring. You forget that he had two years left on his deal mm-hmm. when he was holding out before the 2019 season. That's one thing to take into consideration. Sure. Tony Pollard was also a rookie that year, which is very funny. So Zeke came into the league because he was drafted that high with a top 10 average annual value at the position. Mm -hmm. Todd Gurley was about a year out from his deal that paid him $14 million a change per year. If the Cowboys were going to do an extension, it was going to be $15 million a year for Zeke. Zeke. Mm -hmm. Because he had two years left on his deal, last season was the first season of Ezekiel Elliott's six-year extension with Mm -hmm. the Cowboys. Mm -hmm. This is year two. He has an $18.2 million cap hit this year, which is the ninth highest in the NFL among non-quarterbacks at any position. 
the Cowboys just traded Amari Cooper for a fifth round pick because they can't pay everybody. I mean, we're still we're in the middle, like deep in the middle of the ramifications of them taking him in the top five, even though it's six years after they did it. Right. And I mean, I don't recall anybody at the time criticizing the Cowboys for extending Ezekiel Elliott. But this is the exact same thing that happened to the Rams with Todd Gurley. They had him uh, after the first three years of his rookie deal. Could have played that out year to year, and I don't think he would have been happy about that. Maybe he would have held out. This is before the new CBA. But they cut him at the end of his fifth-year option. They cut him before that extension even really began. They cut him after five seasons to go play for Atlanta. And instead of paying him what they could have paid him year to year, they paid him like $20 million more and then ate a bunch of dead money to get rid of him. Same thing happened to the Cowboys with Jalen Smith when they gave Jalen Smith a deal. Um, This is something the Cowboys have done time after time and been punished for doing so. It's part of how they manage their cap. They have to get those deals done as quickly as possible. They run them for as long as possible to reduce the salary cap considerations, but it's not ideal. But Mays, this is my question for you. If you could give Jerry Jones truth serum, do you think he would regret making this pick or giving Ezekiel Elliott that contract? Yes. I don't think he would. The the contract, maybe. The pick, no. The pick, no. The contract, yes. Doing I, it two years early, I think, is what they would regret. I, 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 think, give it, I think he would say, I shouldn't have given in to a player who was holding out. I think that's how he thinks more than doing it early. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think those two things are connected, though. Sure, I agree. But, I mean, it, it could have worked out much better for the Cowboys, and it did work out better for them later in the draft. Yeah, it worked out much better for them later in the draft. We'll get to that. Okay. Let's All right, let's talk about the Jalen Ramsey trade and just the impact it's had throughout the league, right? So going back through the Jalen Ramsey timeline, I totally forgot about the mysterious back injury and how oh, yeah. he missed a few games that year. And so... This starts, I believe, the animus between Jalen Ramsey and the Jaguars when he was called out by Tom Coughlin for missing voluntary workouts that April. Do you remember what happened at training camp? Mm, I don't think so. He showed up to training camp that year with a literal Brinks truck. He oh, that, the Brinks, Brinks truck. I, I wasn't sure if that was the year. Oh, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, a, and yeah. A, and a hype. <laughs> I, I, I would honestly have paid... I would pay $1,000 if I could have been in the room with Tom Coughlin to see his reaction to Jalen, like hearing Jalen Ramsey outside the facility with this Brinks truck and this hype man with a megaphone. So, I mean, it didn't take long for things to go off the rails. Week two, he had to fight with Doug Marone on the sideline. That's when the mysterious back injury came into play. He was traded by October. So it was only a couple months from the Brinks truck to him being out of town. And in 20, so obviously that happens, right? And I think on the Jaguar side of this, I'm not trying to just like take a pot shot and oversimplify this. That entire situation where you bring in Tom Coughlin to be the stabilizing force, and now you have kind of a new organizational direction with Tom Coughlin, yep. and this hard-ass approach that you've taken that leads to NFLPA concerns by, yeah. and by, complaints. By the way, and, illegal approach. Let's be yes. clear here. Against I mean, the rules so of the NFL. Many, so many problems with it. But as part of that, You have a top five defensive player in the league who's 24, 25 years old. So you know what? Fuck it. I'm out of (laughs) here. And you trade that guy. And then eventually, with the two picks you get that you traded for, 
you pick Kalevin Chasen, mm-hmm. who has 44 pressures in two years mm-hmm. and played 380 snaps last year, and Travis Etienne. I don't like to lean into this is why bad teams stay bad, but I do think that the Jalen Ramsey fiasco in Jacksonville is an example of why bad teams stay bad. Well, I mean, just think about the picks they had. The, they had, I believe, six consecutive top five picks. And do you remember who they landed with those picks? Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles was 2014. Luke Jokel. Luke Jokel was the second overall pick in 2013. Jalen Ramsey. Jalen Ramsey. Leonard Fournette was the last one. Mm-hmm. The other two were Dante Fowler. Yeah. And then the one before Dave Caldwell got there was Justin Blackman. I mean, I, 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 I think, you know, when you have six consecutive top five picks and you would look back and take one of None them of again. Them are, yes. And None like, of them. like several of them were disasters. I mean, that's what the bad organization is. And that's why when you have a Jalen Ramsey, if you're doing that, like you can't count on, on trading him and getting uh, on drafting well to replace him. Like you have to hope that you get lucky. I mean, Jalen Ramsey, like that, this is not a, an organization that drafts and develop players well and landed Jalen Ramsey and made him to the great player. He is like, this organization had Jalen Ramsey kind of fall into their laps. And then the moment they had to trade him got 30 cents on the dollar for him in terms of value. So I, you know, I, I am the foremost proponent of trading for draft picks and the value of draft picks. But like, this is the downside when you are not a good enough organization to take advantage of them. So on the other side of that, yes, as we mentioned at the top of the show, if looking at, pick for player traits, trading multiple high-level draft picks for a player and giving that player an extension. Yep. There have been several examples of that over the last five to 10 years, right? Khalil Mack, Laramie Tunsil, Jamal Adams. We just got two more with the receivers this spring. The only one that I think has been kind of an unqualified success up mm-hmm. to this point is the Rams trading two first-round picks and giving an extension to Jalen Ramsey and what he has been for the Rams. Correct. He is in a world all his own. In this conversation in 2020, his first full season with the Rams had the best defense in football mm-hmm. that, I mean, they, they wielded him in ways that no other cornerback in the NFL really is right now in the ways that he's utilized. He was a first team all pro the last two years. They were sixth in pass defense DVOA this year, 12th in EPA in the past on defense. Mm-hmm. They paid a combined $6.4 million to their other three corners this year. Yes. They're 22nd in cap spending in their secondary in 2021, and that's with Ramsey making 10 million bucks. Mm-hmm. And this is incredible. For He's one guy, of the most valuable players in the league. I mean, for a guy, who, a, quarterback. a guy who was coming off of a possibly career-threatening back injury to play at this level is really <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's amazing. And that's why I wanted to do this is that yeah. beyond just the Ramsey-Zeke Elliott sliding doors moment for those two teams, that trade ultimately helps win the Rams a Super Bowl. That's why I mean, te- it, it, but that's why teams do it, right? What? But when we're saying these moves don't typically work for teams, like teams are not stupid. They're not sitting there saying, oh, like, like you know, they're not naive to what's happened in the past, but they're also human. They also take the best possible beneficial side of it for themselves. And it's not yeah. thinking, okay, well, you know, the Seahawks trading two first round picks from Jamal Adams or the Bears trading two first round picks from Kamala Lack. Like, yes, teams know those trades happened, but they're going to take, if they want to make this sort of deal, they're going to look at what happened with Jalen Ramsey and say, hey, the Rams gave up two first round picks that were late in each round. They got a superstar cornerback who was in the prime of his career and, and won a Super Bowl in part because they made that move. Like, I think it's not that 
we're smarter than teams, which just we're not in a position where we're desperate in the way that teams are desperate to have these moves work out. I, I think that Jalen Ramsey is an example of this going well. It's not the most common example. It's not the most likely outcome, but it's a reminder. This is why teams make these sort of moves even before uh, the, the Ramsey trade happened. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, our next kind of sliding doors moment, butterfly effect aspect of this, something you just wrote about, the Laramie Tunsil side of this. And it starts with a gas mask bong, which I still one of the most surreal things I've ever dealt with in this business. Sitting there in the auditorium theater at Roosevelt University in the loop, down the street from where I live now, Mm -hmm. and have that come across your timeline, where Laramie Tunsil in a gas mask bong causes a guy who potentially could have been a top five pick to fall down to 13. Like even now talking about it is insane. Were were people allowed to say the word bong on television? Like I feel like just just like the real time <laughs> sessions about what are we allowed to call this must have been incredible. Uh, I said it on the radio today. I guess I should have thought about that before I did it. I don't think it's a, I think it's fine. Like that's what it is. It, yeah, yeah. We're recording this literally on April twentieth. Like it's, it's on four twenty. The weed is legal everywhere. Yes. But yeah, I mean, just it's it's insane. Oh, wait, hold on, is April twentieth the weed purge for you? <laughs> it's it's legal in a lot of places. I guess is what I'd say. It's legal where I am right now. Okay. All right. So you recently wrote about this. I did. Just on a just the broad strokes, yep. lay out the timeline of the Laramie Tunsil trade and the impact that it has had. Okay, so can we go back even further than the, than the Laramie yes, Tunsil? Yes, absolutely. It starts with Dwayne Brown. Dwayne Brown held out, wanted a new deal. Uh, Bob McNair, said, uh, the now deceased owner of the Texans, allegedly said some racist things. I think we can go past legend. He said some racist things, apologized for it. The Texans uh, held, almost held out of a game. They almost held out of practice. Um, they trade Dwayne Brown immediately after that week when he had been sort of the leader of the uh, the Texans responding to Bob McNair's racist comments, trade him to the Seahawks, leaves them with a hole at left tackle. They almost get Andre Dillard, uh, the Eagles trade ahead of them for Andre Dillard. That doesn't work out. They signed Matt Khalil, which was a nightmare. Um, he's, a, he's a mess in the preseason. And they panic and trade two first-round picks for Laramie Tunsil with the, the Miami Dolphins. That leads to... The Texans eventually trade in DeAndre Hopkins. It leads to the Tyreek Hill and Devontae Adams deals because DeAndre Hopkins got a big extension way ahead of the market. And it leads to um, Miami then having the draft capital to tank and then trade uh, their first rounder to the Niners and get three more first round picks. And the Niners getting Trey Lance. Like there's so many things that come to Dwayne Brown holding out and Laramie Tunsil getting drafted by the Miami Dolphins. When in reality, if there had not been that gas mask photo being leaked, I don't think there's any way he falls to the Dolphins, who, by the way, didn't even need a left tackle uh, at 12. They had Juwan James, who was a first-round pick at right tackle, and Brandon Albert on the left side. He was not a, a position of need for Miami, so he goes somewhere else. The entire draft is different if Laramie Tunsil does not have this leak to his Twitter account moments before the draft begins. 
And the best part is that it comes all the way back around. They use some of the draft capital that they eventually got from the Laramie Tunsil deal to trade for Tyree Kill, who yep. was only available in part because of the DeAndre Hopkins extension that yep. only happened because the Texans eventually traded for Laramie Tunsil. I've never seen the butterfly effect, <laughs> but I, I get the butterfly effect confused with what was the other Ashton Kutcher movie where he is? Is it the box? Was he in the box? The one where if you press it, like yes. three people in the world die. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember if he was in that or not. Well, oh, we'll look it up afterwards. But yeah, I mean, obviously, so much changes based on uh, the he was not. In, he was not in the in the box. Who was the male lead in the box? Uh, that would be James Marsden. Oh, that's close enough. <laughs> Same thing. I remember the Cameron Diaz was in it, but I do not remember that it was James Marsden. I remember it was the guy who made Donnie Darko and the really insane movie after Donnie Darko who made the box. Richard Kelly? Yes. I, I'm really glad that we got a box reference. Uh, that's the box reference in while talking about Larry Mitzel here. Well, I mean, you got the box and we got uh, backup Cowboys running back Rod Smith in the podcast. So super topical for, for athletic football show listeners. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, obviously so much changes with the Laramie Tunsil uh, dropping to 12. I think the Ravens probably take him ahead of Ronnie Stanley. Um, I think maybe the Titans take Laramie Tunsil instead of Jack Conklin. I mean, there's lots of different things that could happen. Basically, what we're just trying to point out here is just so much changes in the NFL based on this one random, tiny, bizarre, still, by the way, totally unexplained thing that dropped Laramie Tunsil in the first round here. So there's one more kind of, again, that butterfly effect time travel moment that I want to get to. And that is the Cowboys alternate timeline. Oh, if boy. they do, if they, so I, I forgot how open Jerry Jones was about this. Yeah. Weirdly, like very the day clear. after the draft, he was asked about this and he's like, Oh yeah, I, I regret already not paying up to trade up for Paxton Lynch. <laughs> this is after they'd already drafted Dak Prescott. He said this. So it wasn't just Paxton Lynch, as you probably remember. The Cowboys did want to trade up for Paxton Lynch, and, and the Broncos Cook. beat them much. And then they wanted Connor Cook, and the Raiders traded up ahead of them, and Jerry Jones was <sighs> furious. They had to settle as their third choice for Dak Prescott, who might be, I think you could make the case for Patrick Mahomes, but I would say one of the three or four best draft picks of the past decade, right? They paid him $4 million over his first four years. Total. And he started the entire time. Total four million dollars. All right. At what's amazing about the Broncos thing? Do you remember who the Broncos traded up with to go get Paxton Lynch? I don't. Who was it? Seattle. Oh. So because they made that trade to go get Paxton Lynch, and Paxton Lynch flames out six years down the road, five years down the road, they need to give up two first round picks and two second round picks to trade for Seattle's quarterback. That was one of the reasons they didn't need a quarterback in the 2016 draft. This isn't even the remember some guys podcast. This is the remember some trades podcast, which I, I like, frankly, <laughs> I mean, just, it's amazing when you think about that. And then uh, the other thing I, I think to consider, I mean, obviously with Denver, you know, that sends them into the quarterback wilderness again. And yes. that, that defined their entire franchise over in the post Peyton Manning era and kind of forced them to make that Russell Wilson deal. And they're in a fine spot now, but that's where they were for a very long time mm -hmm. with Dallas. It's remarkable 
to look at the numbers associated with Dak Prescott, to think of them looking into Dak Prescott in the fourth round and think about how little they did with it. <laughs> That's fair. I did write that before they traded for Amari Cooper. Like the they're wasting this incredible asset in a way that the Seahawks did not with Russell Wilson. Like they won a Super Bowl, went to went to a second, almost won a second Super Bowl. And they, you know, were not perfect. They traded the first round pick for Percy Harvin. They did some things they probably would not do again, but they had such an advantage with Russell Wilson and the other, of course, incredible players. It they goes had on back to what we well. said about Jared Goff and Carson Wentz. Right. You can make mistakes. Right. It's okay to make mistakes. The the year in twenty seventeen when the Rams had one of the best offenses in the league with Sean McVay, the most expensive player on their offense by far was Tavon Austin. They were paying him $14 million. And sometimes that's okay when you have the wiggle room and the margin for error that that quarterback contract gives you. And you look at it, you mentioned Russell Wilson. If you look at the list of quarterbacks who were drafted under the new CBA mm-hmm. and early in the draft that played to the level that made them worth a second contract, right? They eventually were going to get one. Almost to a man, those guys have either been to a Super Bowl or been to the doorstep of a Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Russell Wilson, Cam Newton, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow. A couple exceptions. Derek Carr, I think, is one of them. Andrew Luck and Deshaun Watson to waste those guys requires immense organizational negligence. Yeah. And Andrew yeah. Luck, Deshaun Watson, and Dak Prescott, in that stretch where they were on those rookie deals, all of them had one playoff win. Oof. And we give the Colts and the Texans a lot of shit for that, and I don't think we give the Cowboys the same amount. We should. I mean, we absolutely should, right? And I think, you know, I mean... They deserve credit for landing on Dak, but clearly not much, given that he was not their first or second choice. I, The thing that comes to mind for me when I, I look at Dak Prescott is, is that, but also I think just the idea that I always hate when I hear people say, oh, there's not enough quarterbacks to go around. Like The reality is we have no idea what the 32 best quarterbacks in football are. We're not good at sorting through those guys. <laughs> like the Cowboys landing on Dak as a fourth-round pick and having to have Tony Romo get hurt for Dak to, to have the opportunity to play. And he was good in the preseason, but there's an absolutely universe where Tony Romo is healthy. Dak plays one game and is mediocre because he has no experience and doesn't have time to get a second or third start. And the Cowboys go in a totally different direction. And Dak is selling insurance at this point of his life. Like, and that's not because he's not a good player because he's a really good player. Romo himself was a UFA where I think the only Cowboys only really decided he was good because John Payton was there and took a liking to Tony Romo. Um, you know, there's guys out there, not every fourth round pick, not every UFA is like this, but there's more talented quarterbacks out there who don't look like Paxton Lynch than we give credit to. And so I think when I think about those quarterbacks and who, you know, how we're constantly worried, oh, where are these next quarterbacks coming from? There's not enough good quarterbacks out there. There's not enough six foot six quarterbacks who stand in the pocket who have killer arms. There's a lot of guys who don't look like that who are pretty valuable and who can be effective players. And if the Cowboys, sort of without having a choice, had to go to two of those guys and landed on them, even though they weren't trying to in the first place. And now the Cowboys are in like this weird holding pattern as a franchise where yeah. we they're good, they've drafted well, I think they've made a lot of good decisions, but are the Cowboys better now than they were at the end of last season? No. Roster-wise? No. no. Absolutely not. They're definitely not. 
And Stephen Jones came out this week. <laughs> he said that you don't win Super Bowls in the offseason. I would <laughs> I'd beg to differ with Stephen on that point. I, I, you know, the team that just won the Super Bowl, they they took a big step towards doing that in the offseason. The team that won the Super Bowl the year before that signed a guy named Tom Brady in the offseason. And they got their right tackle in that draft and plugged him in. I think a lot of teams recently, 2019, the Chiefs win the Super Bowl the year they give Tyron Matthew a bunch of money. Like Teams wielding some of their financial flexibility to go get some players and wanting to win the Super Bowl, I think has a huge role in which team wins the Super Bowl. Also, the Bengals just did like most of their defense in yes. free agency and yes. almost won a Super Bowl. Like that is not an accident. Yeah, I, I, I take some issue with, with that comment from Stephen Jones. Yes. All right, a couple more really quick ones here. Yep. The Niners traded up for Josh Garnett oh, in, in this draft. The, the They traded with the Chiefs to go do yep. that. The Chiefs uh, picked Chris Jones. With it, with the pick that the Niners traded away, which I think is is just beautiful. And you know what else stands out to me? And when we talk about these guys, is the the knock on Chris Jones even coming into the draft was he has he doesn't have the motor. He doesn't take takes plays off. He's not that guy every single snap. You could say the same thing about Robert and Kimdiche, who was picked about seven picks before him by the Cardinals. Yeah. And I, I I believe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Robert and Kimdiche would be a bust everywhere. Maybe Chris Jones would have been a success everywhere. I have to believe that there is some difference between Chris Jones getting drafted by the Chiefs and Robert Nkandiche getting drafted by the Cardinals. And it's a great point. And being in a better situation. And I, I think it's just a reminder that, you know, good organizations are they, they get the benefit of having guys like that. Like they can take shots on guys like Chris Jones and they have them work out more often than these bad organizations do. And that is that coaching deserves a significant amount of the credit for that. I also think that this draft has evidence that the line between a good organization and a bad organization is very thin. Yep. Because five years before they won a Super Bowl in this draft, the Bucks trade or drafted Vernon Hargraves with the eleventh pick, oh, and no. they traded up to take Robert Aguilar in the second round. Traded up, gave up the thirty-fourth pick of value by the Chase Stewart chart for Roberto Aguayo. By the way, Vernon Hargraves might be the worst player in the NFL to get regular snaps over the last few. He's terrible. And now, and now we think the Bucks are this wonderful organization that does everything right. After that, OJ Howard, Chris Godwin, the following year, Vita Vea, Carlton Davis, uh, Devin White, Sean Murphy, Bunting, Tristan Wirfs, Antoine Winfield. Like, like these arguments that oh, this team does not know how to draft, or this team does not know how to draft. They're so specious. They're so based on 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 small samples. Like, absolutely, Jason Lake could have been fired. Uh, halfway through his run and nobody would have batted an eye and he's done a good job in recent years and won a Super Bowl and yes Tom Brady is part of that but like they've also drafted well that team was good before Tom Brady got there they were okay they were not they had a really they had I think they had the bones of a very good they did for sure and that is that is a credit to how they drafted and it's a reminder that like even the people who we think are geniuses in any one given moment probably are going to look pretty dumb at some point in the very near future. I mean, I don't want to pick on the Bears, but like how many people were saying Ryan Pace was a genius that year they made the postseason? Like he was the executive, literally the executive of the year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, think about other I mean, examples sure. that are more based in draft success. Yeah. I mean, think about how quickly it changed for the Seahawks yeah. and the way we think about the Seahawks drafts now after they went on arguably the best three-year run a team has gone on in the modern era at the beginning of John Schneider's time. To the point where literally their fans were trying to justify the Jamal Adams trade by saying, oh, we're just going to screw up our first-round picks anyway, so we might as well trade them for somebody else. (laughs) Remarkable. All right. The last one that I have, this is another, again, just a small one. Kevin Byard and Justin Simmons were the first and last pick in the third round of this draft. 
they are all pro level safeties now. Yep. The the two first safeties drafted in this class, guys picked in the first round, Carl Joseph and Keanu Neal. Oof. It's just, I do really believe that it's a position where what we're looking for has shifted and should shift. If you look at the pre-draft kind of reviews and scouting reports on these guys, Kevin Byard all rave reviews about his football IQ and, and what it was. But like, ah, is he physical enough? You know, is he he's an ankle tackler? What's his long speed like? People were worried about Justin Simmons because he was skinny. Mm-hmm. And I just think that this is a position where it's so easy to get swayed by these monster hits and these guys that run four four in the draft in, in the pre-draft process. Mm-hmm. And in reality, that's not what drives success at that spot. Well, the Raiders are not going to be pleased to hear this about Jonathan Abram, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I certainly think that it tells us a couple of things. Number one, that you can find those guys later in the draft and that you can take advantage of people who get blown away by, by the sort of physicality of safeties who can make big hits. And there obviously is value in that. Like, I don't think the Seahawks regretted, you know, having Cam Chancellor on their roster. Oh, of course not. But. He was but a fourth round pick. <laughs> he was a fourth round pick. Exactly. You know, I think you guys certainly on this show have had conversations about the the importance of safeties and the value of safeties. And I know there was sort of an, like analytics heavy discussion on on safeties and how valuable they can be. And I think, of course, safeties are important. But I mean, you know, you were able to find two really valuable players there in the third round. And, and I think that's that's easier to do at some positions than it is in others. Anything else? Any other takeaways that you wanted to hit before oh, we get out of here? Do you want to talk about the Browns or the Jets? I mean, the Jets, this, the Darren Lee, Christian Hackenberg back to back is oh, all you need to understand that era of Jets football. Do you want to hear another quick uh, sliding doors one? Sure. So the Jets draft Darren Lee. All the scouting reports say, hey, he, he maybe as a weak side linebacker on a 4 3. He's a 3 4 inside linebacker, never turns out to be a useful player. The Jets don't get what they want out of Darren Lee. They end up paying CJ Mosley. Seventeen right. million dollars a year when the market was thirteen and a half. They paid so much that even the Ravens were like, "Eh, he's like he's like a franchise icon halfway through his career, and we're still good." That probably gets Mike McCagnan fired. It probably uh, causes Bobby Wagner to get cut by the Seahawks because they had to give him an extension to match that CJ Mosley deal. CJ Mosley's career has been pretty anonymous since he left Baltimore. They draft Patrick Queen, who has not been all that exciting for them. Like that totally changes things. And then Christian Hackenberg. I mean. I'm not going to make fun of Christian Hackenberg. Like, that's not the point. But if he works out, the Jets don't draft Sam Darnold. And if Sam Darnold works out, they don't draft Zach Wilson. So that starts an entire other cycle of the NFL when it comes to the Jets. So just a bizarre chain of events for two of the worst picks a team can make. And I think it's honestly more about the Jets than it is about those two particular players. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's, that again, it explains the franchise and explains why they were in the position that they were in. 100%. All right. That was fun. I, some guy, some, we, uh, some. What would you say? It's some drafts podcast. So, some uh, remember some trades podcast. Remember, remember some trades. Remember some trades podcast. I do think it's useful though. I really do oh, think for sure. it's to look back and just think about the impact this stuff has and how wide ranging it is and how six years later, so many of the moves that happened during that draft help us understand why the league looks the way that it looks. And you know what's crazy? We're six years into this draft. And I'm still not sure if Will Fuller was a good pick at 21. <laughs> I had a very similar thought because there was that runner receivers right there. 
Will Fuller, Josh Doxson, Laquantra. He's better than those two guys, but I don't know if you take him again at 21. I, I think maybe depends on what happened the prior, prior week. Uh, we, we could do a whole thing on Josh Doxson and LaCroix Treadwell if we wanted to, but we're out of time here. Barnwell, thanks very much for doing this, buddy. I always appreciate it. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. All right, guys. That's all we got for today. Sincerely appreciate Barnwell for spending the time with us. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with a show that I am very, very excited about. I'm not going to spoil the surprise for who's coming on, but it's one of my favorite shows I think that we've ever done. In the meantime, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I would sincerely appreciate that. Please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. A reminder, next week, Thursday night, Friday night, me, Dane, Nate, live from Las Vegas, breaking down the draft. Every single pick on Thursday night for round one, on Friday night for rounds two and three. Deontay Lee is going to join us. Lindsey Jones is going to join us. You guys can watch on YouTube, on Twitter, wherever you watch The Athletic Football Show. Very, very excited about that. In the meantime, talk to you guys later. This was The Athletic Football Show.